Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm not in the Score studio today. Uh, neither is the usual co-host, Joe Wolfon. No, I am not. We are each recording from our own homes. So apologies in advance if the audio quality isn't quite what it usually is. We're not in the Score studio, obviously, because of uh, the same reason. Hopefully all of you listening are not at your places of work. Everyone is self-quarantining and self-isolating to keep everyone else safe. Having said that, I do realize that, you know, being in sports media and you know, anyone else that's in tech or anything like that, where we can work from home uh, without too many worries. I think we know that that's a luxury and there are a lot of people out there that can't do that. So, you know, if you're obviously a healthcare worker on the front lines, if you are a part of the grocery or food services industry, if you're a first responder, if you're in public safety, if you're tech, if you're a city worker that's just keeping our water running, if you're, you know, anything like that where you can't be at home right now because you're going to be out there working and kind of keeping things moving and going, we obviously respect you more than anyone right now and, and want to give you a shout out. With that, Joe, I think we can get in to some basketball talk, I guess, which feels weird because there hasn't been NBA basketball in what? A little less than two weeks. It feels like longer, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's been uh, it's been certainly a weird time, a scary time. And uh, I, I would certainly like to echo everything that you said. Like, we're definitely extremely fortunate. We can move our offices to our homes and not feel too much of an interruption. But obviously, that's not the case for a lot of people. And just want to send our well wishes out to to everybody. Um, obviously, the you know the emergency and like essential service workers that you mentioned. Just anybody whose lives have been interrupted by this and are feeling uncertain about what's next. I think you know we're all kind of right there in the same boat. Hopefully, this podcast and our continued writing at the score can provide some measure of like distraction and a feeling of normalcy, however briefly, because. Again, like we said on last week's episode, like we're just going to basically talk about basketball. And I know that's probably not something that's top of mind for most people right now, but um, I think it's also something that brings us together in a lot of ways and something that we're all missing together right now. Well said. So the way we're going to structure this pod, we're going to have uh, three different parts. The first two parts are going to be diving into eight posts that Joe and I wrote over the last week or so, comprising two different series. One of them, we called it the What's at Stake series, and it was looking at Four teams who we think have the most to lose if the season is completely lost. The second series we worked on was the Unanswered series, which is looking at uh, a group of teams or players, records, races, whatever, that we would have loved to get some answers on as the course of the season went on, just purely for our entertainment. And obviously, if the season is not finished, we will not get those answers. And then the third part is we're going to have a brief interview with Mavs big man Dwight Powell, who, along with Mark Cuban and Luka Doncic, donated half a million dollars to a really great charity that we want him to tell you all about. So, three-part podcast. Joe, let's dive right into part one, the What's at Stake series. We touched on the Bucks and Lakers in the last pod before the break. You know, I mentioned how, from the Lakers' perspective, it's a shame if LeBron, at this stage of his career, loses one of his last best chances to get a ring. You know, maybe one of his last best chances... You know, whether people agreed with it or not to catch Giannis Antetokounmpo in the MVP race, you talked about the Bucks and, and you know, what a lost season could potentially mean for Giannis's contract situation. I don't know. Did you want to dive in at all to any of those teams well, again? Or? We, yeah, we talked about Giannis and the Supermax and what's at stake there. I don't know that we need to rehash that necessarily, but I do think, I just can't imagine being like a member of the Bucks organization or a Bucks fan 
and and staring down the possibility of losing this season. And I think, you know, for a team like the Lakers, who I know, like, I agree with everything you said about LeBron and how he doesn't have maybe a ton of time left playing at the sort of elite level that he is playing at right now. Um, I, I, you know, ultimately he, like he is going to see some sort of a drop off, right. That has to happen sometime. And, you know, obviously just like an absolutely magisterial age 35 season for him, um, that very well could have ended in his fourth championship. Um, but the, but the Lakers as a franchise have done so much winning in the past, even though they haven't made the playoffs the last six years. And I think like they still presumably are going to have Anthony Davis there for the long term. I know he is going to be a free agent this coming summer, but I can't imagine after all the maneuvering it took for him to get to L.A. and all the success they had there in his first season, I, I can't imagine him going elsewhere. With the Bucks, it's like there's a just so much more uncertainty. I think about what the future is going to look like. Um, they they don't have the benefits of like being in a glamour market the way that LA is, and and they haven't had the kind of organizational success over the years that the Lakers have. Um, they haven't been to the finals since the seventies, since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played in a Bucks uniform. So for them to have come so close last year when they were the best regular season team in basketball. And to have been on the precipice of the finals with a 2 nothing lead over the Raptors in the conference finals, and then to lose four straight, to come back with a vengeance this season and essentially just lap the field uh, in the Eastern Conference anyway, and you know be looking poised to, uh, to avenge that loss and make their way to the finals and quite possibly win a championship, uh, to have that taken away and then be faced with the uncertainty of an offseason when that Supermax is going to be available and will absolutely be offered to Giannis and not knowing whether, you know, he's going to be willing to accept it or not to not be able to see this season through and, and get the satisfaction of, um, of doing what they couldn't manage to do last year. Uh, I think that's just got to be absolutely devastating. Yeah, I agree with that. I think like on an individual level, you could argue no one, in the NBA loses more by losing this season than LeBron. But I think, you know, on a team level and at the franchise level, I agree that the Bucks probably in a class of their own there. Um, and especially so if it does end up affecting the contract status of their franchise player. If you absolutely, I, I know it's, it's just guessing, but if you had to make a guess right now, if the season does not return, does Giannis sign the Supermax this summer? Oh man. Um, I'm going to say yes, uh, just wow. like they have been so good the last two years. And even though they didn't win the championship last year and it's looking like they may not have the chance to win the championship this year, I just think that the the level of team success that they've had um, ought to be enough to convince him to to stick around for another five years. And I think... It helps that he is, like, he's still young. Like, those five years aren't going to comprise the entirety of the rest of his prime, I don't think. So, if you think about it, and especially given the way that, you know, players have managed to maneuver their way out of contracts, at least toward the tail end of them, if things go sideways, 
like that option will be available to him. Like if there are two years or, you know, a year and a half left on his deal and he, and like, it's really just like not going the way that he thought it would in Milwaukee, like he'll be able to force their hand and work a trade somewhere else. He doesn't necessarily have to be there for the life of his contract. And I know Giannis has been like actively like putting it out there that that's not the kind of person or player that he is, that he is loyal and isn't about all those sort of extra superstar perks and the things that maybe you lose out on by playing in a small market like Milwaukee. But um, I don't know. We've heard players say stuff like that before. And eventually, like, if you're a player of his caliber and you just can't find your way over the top of the mountain and you're sort of looking at your career and how many more chances you're going to have, like, I don't know. I think a lot of people have been in that position and said the things that he has said and had a change of heart down the road. So I think given what the Bucks have done and given that they're basically going to remain intact for the next couple of years, I think that ought to be enough for him to be willing to sign. But I really have no idea. Like, that's kind of just a stab in the dark. I'd say he doesn't sign it this summer. I don't know. I just feel like he he allows himself the extra year of flexibility and to kind of get a lay of the land and see what the league looks like as an actual free agent. And, and maybe even just going through the process of free agency is something that I could see him wanting to do, whether he actually wants to leave or not or ends up leaving or not. I don't think him not signing this summer means he's, you know, absolutely decided Milwaukee's not the place for him. But I do, if I had to guess, I'd, I'd go with him not signing it this summer just for the flexibility that, you know, it still allows him for an extra Yeah, no, I mean, that's totally fair. And if I was putting odds on it, like, I wouldn't say that it's any better than a 50-50 shot that he signs it right now. Um, I'm kind of... Right. I sort of just want to throw a bone to Bucks fans and not be too pessimistic um, <laughs> because I, I really do think, like I, I've compared them to the 94 Expos and the Expos never got back to the playoffs, you know, at least not until they relocated to Washington. And, um, you know, that one season just sort of stands out as their last missed opportunity. And I'm hoping, you know, for the sake of the Bucks organization and their fans that that isn't the case for Milwaukee, that they do get another chance and they do ultimately get back to where they were and that this isn't the season that they look back on and say, well, that is when everything changed. That was our shot and uh, we missed it basically because of circumstances totally beyond our control. No one involved in sports at any level wants to be part of the what could have been team. Absolutely not. And again, uh, it is nice for the Bucks that they have all their core players locked in for next season. You know, Middleton will be back, and he's played the best basketball of his career this season. You know, Bledsoe will be back, and I know he gets dumped on a lot for his disappearing act every spring. But as a regular season player, like, he's been a huge part of the success that they've had, especially at the defensive end of the floor. Um Brooke Lopez will be there, and as much as his three-point shooting has fallen off this season, he's been such a vital part of their defense. Um, just absolutely one of the best rim protectors in the league. The, the kind of bones of that structure are still going to be in place, and I, I don't really see any reason why, if we were to sort of just jump ahead right now to next season, why they wouldn't still be the favorite to come out of the East. Okay, a team maybe not dealing with the same level of uncertainty regarding their future in the West, but... A team, I think, dealing with more uncertainty than a lot of people realize is the Clippers. I mentioned it when they first, you know, landed the biggest fish of the, the summer in Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George. 
and everyone just assumed this was like this new long-term powerhouse in LA because they're both LA guys and they're going home and this is just going to be sunshine and rainbows forever. You know, I was reminding people at the time, like things move so quickly in the NBA, you know, in all pro sports, but in the NBA especially, and a year can make such a difference and let alone two years. And, you know, Kawhi and Paul George can both be free agents again after only two years with the Clippers. Now, do I think it's likely that both would leave or even one would leave? Probably not. But I think anyone who at any point just assumed that these guys were going to be there for the rest of their careers has not been paying attention to how quickly things move in the NBA. So with that said, you wrote in our What's at Stake series about the Clippers. What do you want to add? They they went all in on the present, right? As much as any team in the league. Like, they are built for right now. And I I think about it in sort of similar terms as what, what I said about Anthony Davis. Like, these two guys both specifically picked to play with each other on the Clippers. So it does seem unlikely that only two years after the fact, they would bolt and and go somewhere else. But you said it, like this is the NBA and things change at warp speed and the future is absolutely never set in stone. And there's certainly no guarantee that those two guys are going to be Clippers beyond 2021 when both can opt out of their contracts and become unrestricted free agents. So if you thought about this as like, well, they have an, like a guaranteed two-year window of legitimate championship contention and maybe even championship favorite status, and now they're losing one of those years, like their championship window is essentially being sliced in half, potentially, um, man, they are hanging out there in the wind right now. Like they have, they, they traded seven well, f- well, five outright first-round picks and two first-round pick swaps, plus Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who looks like you know one of the best young players in the league, on top of Danilo Gallinari, who, frankly, like, if you took the picks out of the deal completely, and you had just traded, like, if they had just traded Shea and Gallo for Paul George, I think that on its face still would have looked like a pretty fair deal for the Thunder. It's like, true. they are out those two players, and especially Shea. I mean, Gallo had one year left on his deal and was a vet, so I don't know that that's such a huge loss for them long-term. But to trade a guy who looks like a future all-star, along with five first-round picks and those pick swaps, and to potentially only get, like, one season in which they are going to be able to, like, play a postseason and compete for a championship, that is pretty frightening. Listen, if one of Kawhi or Paul George leaves in 2021 and this season just never returns, that's an absolute franchise catastrophe. This team does not control its own first round pick until 2027. Yeah, yeah and then, I mean, you throw on top of that, they, they dealt their last remaining first rounder that they could trade before 2028 at this year's deadline to get Marcus Morris. And he's a one-year rental, like a half-season rental who wound up playing 12 games for them. And 12 pretty substandard games at that. Like, he wasn't even particularly good for them. They get 12 games out of him and, and potentially don't even have him for a postseason run. Then he becomes a free agent. Montrez Harrell is going to be an unrestricted free agent this summer. I don't know what it's going to take to re-sign him. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about free agency now because of the potentially shrinking cap. But I think he's going to command a pretty lucrative salary given the way that he's played the last couple of seasons. The Clippers are already really light on big men. So it's like, 
they're sort of in a position where they may not be able to afford to keep him, but also don't seem to be able to afford to lose him either. They're going to be over a barrel with him and with Morris, given the acquisition cost and the fact that they actually tried to sign him as a free agent last summer. You'd think that they'd be inclined to try and re-sign him as well. And then if they have those guys locked up on long-term deals and one of Kawhi or PG decides they don't want to be there anymore, I think they're going to be in real trouble because they'll be in cap trouble and they will also not have like their asset covered forget the picks even like as far as young players like it's it's Landry Shamit and pretty much nobody else yeah it's it's not a great place to be if if you don't win right and I think between the three teams we've discussed already between the Clippers the Lakers and the Bucks like everyone else we can be in pretty much agreement that those are the three teams that looked like clear-cut championship contenders you know you could make a case for maybe a handful of other teams being able to sneak in there but those were the three teams that could truly legitimately go into this postseason with finals or bust kind of expectations and and i think therefore it makes sense that those are the three teams that have the most to lose by losing this season the fourth team to talk about and it's one i wrote about is the rockets and I think the Rockets are in a different spot than those three teams we've talked about. You know, they, they're a franchise player. There's no uncertainty about his future with the team. Their best player is not 35 years old like LeBron James is. And their top two players aren't potentially gone in a year and a half the way it could be with the Clippers. But with the Rockets, what I think is interesting is that on an executive level and on like a management level, it's kind of like that because I think to me anyway, the writing seemed to be on the wall that Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni especially are on the hot seat. I mean, Mike D'Antoni is in a contract year and Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta, all you have to do is look up his comments about lame dunk coaches about a year ago. What's your take on the Rockets? Because the way I saw it was especially when, I mean, the Westbrook trade in general, like going turning Chris Paul into Russell Westbrook cost them a lot of assets. And I thought that was kind of Maury's maybe last all-in move because he used so many of his bargaining chips. And then trading Capella at the deadline to go all-in on like the most extreme version of small ball, at least from a contender that we've ever seen a team commit to. To me, it seemed like Maury and even D'Antoni kind of going all in on their own brand of basketball, their own vision for basketball, and almost seeing it as like, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down, you know, doing things our way. And to me, it's going to be a shame if they're not given the chance, you know, in a postseason setting one more time to try things their way. And and I really think that it could be the end for at least one of those two guys in Houston after a pretty successful run, especially for Morey. He's been there more than a decade now, and he's continued to retool and rebuild and on the fly without ever really tanking and has built this sustainable model of success. They just haven't been able to get over the hump, and some of that's their own fault, and some of that's you know, the Warriors are great and some other things. And Dan Tony, we know his long history of being so close to winning it all and not being able to get over the hump. So it, it'd kind of be a shame, at least to me, if even one of these guys sees their Rockets tenure come to an end at the end of the season without an actual postseason to try taking one last Yeah, to me, this is more about, like, I just really wanted to see what it looked like in the playoffs and whether or not it could be successful. And success, I think, being relative there like if they were to take one of the LA teams to seven games in the second round I would still consider that a success but I was just really intrigued and excited to see how it looked in the playoffs and the idea of not getting that opportunity definitely sucks and you know as far as D'Antoni and Mori go yeah obviously like their their jobs have sort of been hanging in the balance all season it seems and I don't know 
Like, you could say that this might go the other way in that because they didn't get a chance to flame out in the playoffs, maybe that affords them a longer leash. But the Rockets are another team, I guess, that is built for the present. And they have a ton of draft capital that's gone out the door. And the, the difference between them and the Clippers, I suppose, is that they have Harden and Westbrook under contract for longer. But those guys are also a little bit older than Kawhi and PG, so maybe the runway is a bit shorter for those guys as being sort of top-shelf players that can carry a franchise. But I think it's more just sort of on a tactical and an aesthetic level. We like The, the playoffs was going to be the proving ground for whether this experiment could be successful. And, I, I mean, it's entirely possible they just sort of run it back next year and essentially roll out the same full-time small ball look, or you know maybe they use the offseason as an opportunity to get like a, a low-cost big man that can afford them 15 or 20 minutes playing with a traditional center, and it's not the same, um, and maybe we don't get another look at, at what this, uh, how this would have played out. But you know the Rockets, sort of like the Clippers, are just they're in this for for the present, for this current moment and the window that they have with James Harden playing at the peak of his powers. So to lose uh, a potential opportunity to compete for a championship, to lose a, a, a postseason would be as devastating for them as it would be for anybody. All right, you want to move over to the unanswered? Yeah, half of our series. Let's start with one of the playoff series that I know you have been waiting for for a long time. I have too. I think fans of both teams have been waiting for it for a long time. And honestly, just NBA fans have been waiting for it. The Raptors and Celtics have been two of the most, if not the most, I mean, the Raptors for sure have been the most consistent Eastern Conference team over the last, what, six, seven years. The Celtics have been right there with them, especially in the last few years. You know, both have done it with very different iterations of their team over and over again and kind of rebuilding um, or at least retooling multiple times over the last couple of years. And yet there they stand, the two and the three in the East again. And it seemed like they were finally on a collision course to meet in the playoffs. And it's looking like we're not actually going to get to see it. So you really Yeah, I mean, I, I'm remembering like maybe two or three episodes ago when we were talking about these two teams and trying to figure out how they would stack up and who would win a playoff series, a playoff series that we were both like, well, it's finally going to happen this year after all those near misses. And it like I think we both said basically that we thought it would go to seven games, it would be close to a coin flip, and that we'd essentially just give the nod to whichever team got home court advantage. I think either way it would have been an unbelievable series. The the, the notion of of going <laughs> yet another year where it seemed as if these two teams were on a collision course and instead their sort of paths being diverted and us, you know, not getting to see them square off in a best of seven, uh, is definitely super disappointing. I thought these teams were really evenly matched. They were two of the better stories in the league, I think. I mean, the Celtics kind of bouncing back from that miserable 2018-19 season, the breakout of Tatum and Jalen Brown, uh, the great fit of Kemba Walker, and him finally having an opportunity to do some damage in the playoffs after essentially having to try and carry those Hornets teams by himself for so long. And then for the Raptors, obviously, you know, they lose Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard in the offseason. <laughs> I like that you said Danny Green first. That's well, I actually, I remember, like, like, everyone's focusing on the Kawhi departure, justifiably so, but they really just had, like, no way of replacing the minutes that Danny Green was giving them on the wing. Like, they were so thin at the two spot. And then Fred Van Vliet gets injected into the starting lineup as the starting two guard and plays phenomenally well. And, and then Norman Powell has this unbelievable breakout 
and you know is a six man of the year candidate and also he's starting when Van Vliet's out of the lineup and is just playing the best ball of his career and Siakam makes another leap and Kyle Lowry continues to defy father time in his age 34 season um, you know doing things that essentially a point guard at his age and his size has really never done before aside from essentially what Chris Paul is also doing in the same season. The Raptors, through 64 games, had the exact same record this year that they had last year. They had a three-game lead on the Celtics for that number two seed, so we're looking primed to both avoid a really tough first-round series and have home court in the second round. So I think you could say they maybe had a leg up, uh, but I think it was going to be really, really close regardless. Um, and also think, like, you know, with between Tatum and Siakam, even though those guys are sort of stylistically distinct, um, they've naturally been compared to each other, just given their similar trajectories, like the, the similar stage that their games are at right now and how they've both become kind of the number one offensive options on their respective teams. I think that series would have been a really interesting look at which one of those guys was going to be more valuable in a playoff setting and which one of them could actually step up and carry their teams when it mattered most. And there were, I don't know, I mean, there were just like any number of things that I was looking forward to in a potential matchup between those teams. I mean, a chess match between Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse. I'm really bummed uh, that we might not be getting the series. Yeah, so am I. I think it would have been a great series. I think it would have been a really exciting series. And I think it would have been a really cool series, even for basketball nerds, because of that chess match you just mentioned between Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse. I will say, I think the Raptors are the better team. I think if one of those teams could have won the series without having a potential game seven at home it would be the Raptors and I mean I think I guess that point would have been moot anyway because they had opened up like you mentioned a three game lead over Boston so I think that had they gotten to the playoffs with the Raptors having home court advantage that there is a possibility it might not have been as competitive as we imagined it's definitely possible um but I I could have seen that going the other way as well and I I you know sort of kept flip-flopping because I saw reasons to believe and not believe in both of these teams um and for the celtics i just think they like they have so much shot creation and they have the kind of shot creators that i think become super valuable in the playoffs which are like wing creators uh between yeah. tatum and brown and um hayward and then kemba obviously kemba. just like as a pull-up shooter like guys who can who can create their own offense reliably uh down the stretch of games just become so valuable and i think the celtics had more guys like that than the raptors did but i think the raptors also maybe had more defensive counters for the celtics best options than vice versa like the celtics i don't think have a natural defender for siakam tatum's probably the closest thing that they have um but i think siakam's you know managed quite well against him in the past whereas you know the raptors have uh, you know og ananobi to throw at Tatum and Siakam can guard, you know, basically any position on the floor. And um, I have a lot more faith in Mark Gasol anchoring a back line than in Daniel Tice, as good as Tice has been this season. And Fred Van Vliet can hound Kemba all over the floor. Like the Raptors were maybe like a little bit better equipped to defend the Celtics than vice versa, but I thought it was really close and I was interested to see it play out. So I don't know. I mean, we're talking about this as if the season has been canceled, which I guess we should clarify <laughs> it hasn't been yet. Uh, but I just think it's going to be, even if we do get some kind of a postseason, like it's not going to look like a typical postseason, obviously. A team that I don't think would have gone as far as everyone involved in the organization craved is the Philadelphia 76ers. We were just talking about the Raptors 
Raptors and Celtics. Well, the Sixers were supposed to be miles ahead of both those teams this season. And we're supposed to be fighting it out with the Bucs for the number one seed, or at least for postseason supremacy with that team in the Eastern Conference. And they were on pace for 49 wins when the season might have ended. They were not even going to be a 50-win team, which when you consider the preseason expectations is pretty remarkable. Now, they've had some injury issues, and you know Ben Simmons was going to be out at least another three weeks at the time the season was suspended, but... You know, the Raptors and Celtics also had their injury issues, the Raptors especially, so it's not really enough of an excuse for the Sixers. Do you think Philly could have or would have figured out their very obvious roster construction issues and just general fit issues in time to make the postseason run everyone thought they were capable of? I think the odds were pointing to no, um, just given that, I mean, if the, se- if the season had continued as normal, it was really looking like Simmons was going to, if he did come back, probably be in a somewhat compromised physical state i don't know it it just like there were really very few indicators pointing to them figuring things out um but i was still a believer in their playoff ceiling and how good they could be if things just sort of clicked into place and especially at the defensive end of the floor like i've been saying all year that i thought they were the team best equipped to slow down Milwaukee's offense And the big question to me was whether they were going to be able to score enough for that defense to matter. Like so many of these other teams we've talked about, like the proof of concept was going to come in the postseason. And I don't know really where this leaves Philly. Like if there is no postseason, what does that mean for them going into the offseason? I would have said regardless that I don't think they need to hit the panic button and like push eject on the Simmons and beat experiment yet. Like those guys are still so young. They should still have time to try and, you know, work around the margins to put the right team around those guys. But I do think it became pretty clear that the the team around them isn't optimal. If you ask the question like, can it work? I would lean towards saying yes, but I think it makes it more difficult. Um in order to, like, to, to construct a roster, essentially, if those two guys are at the center of it. And the, the Sixers have cycled through so many different teams in like such a short period of time, in large part, I think, because of the roster-building challenges that are presented by having those two guys at the middle of the roster. I think it's fairly clear that the roster they have now is not um, is not the best one to surround those guys with, and that was going to be really tricky, and is, is going to be really tricky, because... You have Horford and Tobias Harris on these long-term exorbitant deals that are going to be really, really difficult to move. And I don't know where they go from here. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, look, I picked the Sixers to win the East at the beginning of the season, and I held out hope for a while for that team just because of the ceiling that you mentioned, especially on the defensive end and just all their size. I had given up on them, at least as a championship contender, by the time the season was over. I think even if Simmons had gone healthy... You know, as high as their ceiling was, I just, you know, at some point the sample size had gotten big enough over the last few years to realize that I just don't think it's going to work with these two guys. And and I don't mean not going to work in general, because clearly like being a 50 win team and even last year taking the wraps to seven, although a lot of that was Jimmy Butler too, like it, it would work in the sense that they would be a very competitive team you know, with an outside shot of maybe getting it done every year. But in terms of building the optimized roster around one of these guys, one of them has to go. And I think this season just made it obvious. Again, we can look at a bunch of things. You can look at the way they play with one of those guys off the floor. You know, I still think it's interesting because I think Embiid is the more dominant player. I don't think to me, there's any question about that. I think if you're guaranteed health and everything, I think you take Embiid over Simmons. I think why choosing between them isn't as easy as it maybe should be is even, you know, Simmons' back issues now notwithstanding. Since he's come to the league, he's been 
the far healthier player. I think you can argue even maybe like more consistent, although there's issues with, you know, reported issues with, you know, whether he wants to get better and that stuff too. So I don't know. I, I think it just doesn't make sense to continue going forward with these two guys. We're not talking about like a one or two year sample anymore. You know, we're talking about enough of a sample size where I think it's very obvious stylistically these guys don't fit together. And, you know, even from Simmons' perspective, like, I get that if you surround either one of these guys with shooting, it probably looks better. But Simmons is a point guard technically. You know, he's a offensively. He's a ball handler. And if he can't operate and execute in a half-court setting, which is what we know the playoffs become, like, I don't see a path to building a title, true title team around him as as a lead offensive Yeah, I mean, he's not a point guard, though, and that's the problem. Like, they, he's been shoehorned into this role as a point guard, and I don't, like, you can call it chicken and the egg, I guess, but... The Sixers did try to draft a guy who was going to be their point guard of the future in Markel Fultz, and obviously that that whole thing sort of blew up in their faces. And now, you know, they've been forced, I guess, to make Simmons their point guard, when I really don't think that that should be who he is or what he does. Like, they need a true offensive half-court initiator, and the closest thing they have to that right now is Josh Richardson, who can do, like, an okay job of that, but I think that if if Simmons was allowed to 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 kind of occupy what I think his more natural role should be, which is, like, a kind of playmaking four, then they'd be in a lot better shape, but they don't have that one guy who can kind of tie it all together, and I think, you know, Jimmy Butler was the closest thing they had to that, and you saw how that worked in the playoffs yeah. last year, and, and Butler, I mean, as good as he is, as a creator, like he, even he is not like a natural point guard, right? He's more of a wing. And I think if they had somehow found a way to get like a Chris Paul, then things could look potentially a whole lot different for that team. Yeah, I think I'd say so. I think the Sixers would be a lot better with Chris Paul in the lineup right now. Okay, so if you're, I guess two questions. If you're Elton Brand, do you look to move one of those guys is the first question. Uh, no, I wouldn't. Not not this summer. Okay. And then stepping away from that, you're not Elton Brand. Elton Brand <laughs> is Elton Brand. Do you think do you think he makes a move? Or actually let's go let's go with this. So there's Brett Brown, there's Joel Embiid, yeah. and there's Ben Simmons. That's three guys. Over under one point five of them will be back. I'm gonna year. take the over. I think Embiid and Simmons will both still be there. And you agree that Brett Brown will I not think be- if there is like one of those guys is not on the team next year, he is overwhelmingly the most likely guy to be somewhere else. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the thing with Brett Brown is I don't think he's a bad coach. I think that, you know, I was talking about like the sample size being big enough now with Embiid and Simmons. Well, it's even bigger with Brett Brown in Philly. And there are certain things, and again, you can maybe point to the fact that it's the roster and the two guys that are leading the charge and it's not Brett Brown's fault, but there are certain things with this team and you can look at the turnovers or different things that just for whatever reason they have not figured out in his time on the job there. And then another, I think, valid question is... You know, how much accountability there is for Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And that's something that Jimmy Butler has kind of alluded to, you know, with some tongue-in-cheek remarks over the last year or so. Yeah, I just think he's, it seems like he's probably reached the end of his rope. Like, uh, I feel like Brown was a great coach for those rebuilding process era Sixers because it's a little bit similar to like the Kenny Atkinson thing in Brooklyn where if you're a rebuilding team you want a coach who is going to have a system and instill the kind of principles of like ball movement and motion offense and you know sort of keeping everybody involved and having these pretty ornate offensive sets but 
the Sixers as they are currently constructed. And I think this was sort of the problem they ran into with Jimmy Butler is like he wanted to have the ball in his hands and run more pick and roll. And, uh, you know, the, the Sixers just hadn't been that kind of a team when he arrived there and they were forced to be, become that kind of team in the playoffs. And it worked for them. It almost got them to the conference finals where who knows what might have happened. But now I just think, I mean, I think it, the, the problem is two pronged. And one of those prongs is they have to have the right roster in order to run like a more pick and roll heavy system. And right now I just don't think they're particularly equipped to do that. Um, but then the second thing is like they have to have a coach that's willing to maybe adapt a little bit more to to the personnel on on his roster. And it seems like, I don't know, Brown's been there for a long time. And um, whether it's a case of his voice not resonating in the locker room the way that it used to, or he's just sort of burned through his bag of tricks and can't figure out anymore how to make it work with Simmons and Embiid and the roster around those guys, then it might just be time for a fresh set of eyes. Yeah, I think I think they may have reached that point. Flipping over to the West, I think we can both agree that one of the things we were most looking forward to, as most of our listeners probably feel the same way, down the stretch was that race for the West's eight seed, the final playoff spot in the West, and really the final playoff spot up for grabs in the entire league. Because other than that, you know, there was 15 teams pretty much locked into a playoff spot barring catastrophe you wrote about this one what what do you want to add um i just i was just really excited to see where it went and i know like if you just look at the standings it seemed like the grizzlies had a pretty comfortable lead like they were three and a half games up on the rest of those uh, the teams chasing them but the grizzlies had by far the toughest remaining schedule in the league like it wasn't even close and there's a chance they would have survived that schedule and still grabbed that spot and that would have been super exciting in its own right but I think the more likely outcome would have been them struggling against that slate and opening the door for any one of those teams to come barging through. And I think the Pelicans were the team that everyone was most excited about, given just how electric Zion had been. Uh, they went 11-8 and eight with him in the lineup. They were outscoring teams by over 10 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor. Uh, they had two games on the schedule left against the Grizzlies, which I just think would have been so fun and there was this kind of debate that had started to burble a little bit about whether Zion uh, might have been able to usurp Rookie of the Year from Ja Morant. I mean, I wasn't quite there. I thought Ja had been good enough paired to Zion that uh, it should have been a closed case. But if the Pelicans had been dominant down the stretch, stolen that eight seed, won both of those head-to-heads against the Grizzlies... I think it would have been a legitimate debate, you know, even beyond Zion. Like that, that's just like a really exciting young team with the way Ingram has been playing and Lonzo Ball was really coming on strong and Drew Holiday is just always a delight to watch. Um, I think either of those teams sneaking into that eighth seed and and getting a first round series against the Lakers would have been super exciting. But there were also the Blazers lurking and Lillard had just come back from injury and Nurkic was nearing a return and I think they absolutely could have been in that mix down the stretch. Probably not the you know for most fans outside of Portland, not the team that people would have picked um, if they had their choice of which team got the eighth seed, just because there's no novelty there. But I think if you're actually looking at who might have been able to give the Lakers a series in the first round, the Blazers were probably the best equipped team to do that, just given their their top-end talent and their experience level. Yeah, and I think Dame is an ultimate postseason and big-game performer, other than when he was guarded by uh, Rajon Rondo and Drew Holiday. But yeah, I think he doesn't have the novelty factor that you mentioned with, obviously, John Morant and Zion Williamson are rookies. We've never seen them on that stage, and it would have been fun to see them duke it out. But 
you know, the one thing Dame did have is you know that guy was going to show up for big games. And even if it wasn't making the playoffs, even just watching him try to will them, the Blazers, into the playoffs, I'm sure there would have been a couple more big Dame performances down the stretch that would have been fun in their own right. You know, the Kings, who have had a disappointing season, were only three and a half back and three in the loss column. And save for a couple of games, have actually played pretty well the last couple of weeks. The Spurs, I don't think, had much of a chance to sneak in. They were four games back with four teams to leap. But, you know, we've seen crazier things from the Spurs over the last 22 years or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think in general, that race would have been awesome. And it's really the first time I can remember a West race like this where there's not, you know, you look at last year, I think the eight seed was, what, 46, 47 wins? Like, th- this is the first time in a long time that the the race for the eight seed is I don't want to say just a bunch of bad teams but you know a bunch of kind of like underdog teams there's not a team in there that I think you can look at as you know anything close to a powerhouse and that in and of itself in the western conference would have been kind of interesting yeah, definitely. To watch. and I think you know every one of those teams have something interesting to offer like even beyond the teams that we mentioned in the Grizzlies Pelicans and Blazers like the Spurs had that 22 year playoff streak on the line and the Kings, you know, in the opposite direction, haven't made the playoffs since 2006. Um, so obviously, you know, the two teams that for completely opposite reasons would have been totally desperate to get in and either end or extend their playoff streak slash drought. Um, and I think, you know, even if the Kings had been like one and done, just gotten swept by the Lakers, I think that would have been a pretty thrilling and cathartic experience for their fan base after the disappointment of the last decade and a half. And they just had such a weird season. They started off really poorly. They dealt with some injuries. Fox was out for a while. And even when he was playing, didn't really seem to have his mojo. They went from being the fastest team in the league to being one of the slowest teams in the league, which was just a really strange direction for them to take. Um, Buddy Heald started coming off the bench, but it all kind of like started to coalesce toward the end of the season. And they were definitely right there in that mix. Um, I don't think they would have been the team to get in, but um, the fact that they were in the hunt that's late in the season after the way they started was, I don't know, it just made them sort of interesting. I don't know. I I was like, I I always loved those Kings teams in the early 2000s. And I've sort of always been rooting for them to just like get back to the playoffs throughout all these miserable years. And I think eventually it's going to happen. I don't know if it would have been this year, but uh, they had a chance. Yeah, who didn't love those early 2000s Kings teams (laughs) other than Shaq? But yeah, in terms of this Kings team, it was pretty remarkable. You know, if you if you weren't really paying attention to the day to day grind of the NBA and you maybe like bobbed in and out throughout the season and then with you know, a month left of the season, you realize the Kings were only three and a half games out. I think it would have been pretty remarkable to you. But again, I just think that was kind of the excitement that this very weird, strange year in the Western Conference bore out. And I, it would have been fascinating to see how it ended. I mentioned the Spurs. That's a perfect segue into the last one of the unanswered series that I wrote. And it was dealing with a few records or just statistical achievements that will be left unanswered if the season doesn't finish. And, you know, we can start with the last team I mentioned in that post, which was the Spurs. And the question basically is, is the Spurs playoff streak in jeopardy or intact? You know, if there's no postseason and the Spurs, you know, had not been mathematically eliminated yet, which they weren't, you know, like I said, they they were up against it. They were four games back with four teams to leap and only 19 games left to do it. They probably were not going to make the playoffs, but we cannot say for certain that they were not going to because they had not been mathematically eliminated yet. So if there is no postseason, does their 22-year playoff streak continue? And if that's the case, then that means that when the next season tips off, they will still have a chance 
to set the record they were going for this year. Right now, their 22 straight playoff appearances matched the 76ers Nationals NBA record that was set from 1950 to 71. You know, everyone assumes that the Spurs going for the record, the all-time record, becoming the first franchise to make the playoffs 23 years in a row is the reason they weren't sellers at the deadline when it looked like they weren't really playoff contenders. So that in and of itself to me is a fascinating question, right? Like their streak looked like it was going to be over, but we can't say for sure that it was. And now if there is no postseason or even end of the regular season, like what do we make of that streak? Is it just asterisk? What happened? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's got to be a live feeling. If there's no postseason and they hadn't been eliminated, then right, then technically it should be it should be a live streak. It's very strange. It's kind of strange though, isn't it? Maybe they should do it where they, they take the Spurs first 19 games next season and compare it (laughs) against the records of the teams that they were behind in the standings. And if, if the record indicates that they would have caught up and passed those teams to make the playoffs, then the streak lives. But if not, then the streak is dead. But I think, I think the Spurs maybe out of all these teams had like the least at stake in a weird way, just because, Regardless of whether they got into the playoffs or not, like it is so clear that the the era of Spurs sort of dominance, esteem, prestige, whatever you want to call it, like that's over. They're just it's it's not at all the same as it was, and I think they're going to be in a really tricky spot. You know, regardless of whether um, whether they would have made the playoffs or not, like they're going into this summer, and I don't know. I mean, maybe this this cap drop that we all think is coming is going to affect DeRozan's decision and maybe he'll opt in as opposed to opting out of his contract. But I don't know, the direction the Spurs are headed right now, it's not super rosy, I don't think. And, you know, barring DeJounte Murray exploding into superstardom, I don't necessarily see a path forward for them where they get back to anything resembling the level they were at before the whole Kawhi fiasco railroaded them. I think you had mentioned on a previous episode that they are just kind of another NBA team now, right? Like the, you know, respect everything they did for two decades, but the mystique around, you know, the Spurs system and all that, I think is kind of out the window now and they are just what they are. And I think, you know, had they operated like that, they would have been sellers at the deadline. And again, I think the reason that postseason streak fascinated me is because, you know, they, they operated in a way as if they were just making the playoffs was everything their season was about because they wanted that record. And now it's like, well, they weren't going to make it. The season's probably over. But even if they make it next year, like, yeah, I guess technically the record stands. But I don't know. I, I just feel like it would never feel the same now. Yeah. You know, there, there's always certain events that can change that. You know, whether it's a player that they draft this year or whether it's, I don't know, it's like Lonnie Walker, say, taking like a totally unexpected leap. Um or Murray, like, you know, another year removed from that ACL injury is just suddenly the two-way terror that he's kind of flashed uh, the potential of being at various points in time. I, th- I think I just think the biggest mistake they made, obviously, was not looking toward, like, the long-term future when they made that Kawhi Leonard deal. Settling for DeRozan and Pirtle and, like, what turned out to be the 29th overall draft pick, I just... I mean, that was the move ultimately that I think uh, consigned them to their current fate. I don't know. I don't know how they get off now of this treadmill of mediocrity that they seem to suddenly be on. 
a player who's playing on a team that would kill for some mediocrity, Mitchell Robinson, the New York Knicks. I wrote about him in the last The Unanswered series, and if anyone's listening right now thinking, why in God's name were Mitchell Robinson and the Knicks a relevant topic of one of these posts, it's because I don't know how many people realize this, but Mitchell Robinson was on pace and on track to break Wilt Chamberlain's 47-year-old record for highest field goal percentage in a single season. Mitchell Robinson... At the time the season was suspended, was shooting 74.2% from the field. The all-time record set by Chamberlain in 1973 was 72.7%, and in the nearly half century since, the closest anyone had come to challenging that was DeAndre Jordan shot 71.4% three years ago. So the caveat is that while Mitchell Robinson qualified for the in-season leaderboard uh, in field goal percentage at that point in the season, he was actually 47 made field goals away from qualifying from the usual end-of-season leaderboard for field goal percentage because the cutoff is 300 made field goals and he had 253. This is another very interesting question because, again, if, say, the season is canceled and Mitchell Robinson was on pace to reach the 300, he qualified for the the leaderboard at the time the season was suspended, he would have the record. I know it's not really a big thing in terms of all these other things we're looking at are like big picture things and where teams go in that. And I understand this, you know, is not going to affect the future of the league, but I think it's still worth talking about that someone was going to break a record that had been set by Wilt 47 years ago, and now we just have questions. And this is something I actually reached out to the league for, for some clarification. They said they'd get back to me. I haven't heard back yet, but basically it seems like right now nobody knows what will happen with this if the season is canceled, whether they will prorate, you know, the the usual statistical minimums needed to qualify for end of season leaderboards. Maybe they'll prorate it to the amount of games teams have played because teams have played between 63 and 67 games. Or will they just simply say it was an abandoned season and things just don't count? Like, I I I don't know. I think they'll end up prorating it. And it would be different if this had happened like 40 games into the season, but you know, you're talking about having played more than three quarters of the year. You're basically at the point that you were at in 2011, 2012, which was a 66 game season on account of the lockout. And I mean, they must have had sort of prorated cutoffs in that season for what qualified you uh, to be part of the leaderboard at the end of that season. I don't know what those cutoffs were, but I imagine they could use that maybe as a benchmark to do the same for this season since most teams had played uh, about the same number of games this year, um, approaching that 66-game threshold. So, A couple more unanswered questions from, the, from this specific topic when it comes to Robinson. Uh, the Knicks had 16 games left. They had actually played 66, and he had played 61. If he had continued on his pace of 4.1 made field goals per game, he would have needed to play another 12 games to reach 300. And then the Knicks, like I said, had 16 left. So... What I think would have been fascinating is had he, you know, if the season continued and he got to 300 made field goals with the record intact, but like barely clinging it, would the Knicks have sat him for the final few games? Would he have simply started like refusing to shoot to make sure that everything remain intact if the season actually does come back but say it's only like four or five regular season games does he then start demanding the ball a lot more than he used to to make sure he can get to 300 made field goals and give himself a chance like there are some questions there that i think especially on a team where they had nothing to play for from a wins and losses perspective if the season comes back or not i think there are some interesting questions there as to how he and the knicks would have handled that because again when you are on a team like that with nothing to play for something like one of your young players setting 
the field goal percentage record is probably something you want yeah, to Yeah, maybe. I, mean, I don't think it would have been some dramatic thing of him refusing to shoot, quote-unquote, because it's not like he shoots the ball anyway. Like, I don't, like is he going to go up for a lob dunk and, like, pass it out midair? Like, he, he's basically only dunking the ball. Maybe maybe he catches the ball, and usually he'd try to make a move and go up for a layup, and instead he's like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to Maybe. I mean, that might be a good opportunity for him to refine his passing skills. Like, that's one thing looking toward the future that he's going to have to do so uh maybe it would have been a blessing in disguise all right last one chris middleton when the season ended uh he had actually was in like a bit of a let's say it's like a four game shooting slump that dropped his field goal percentage to 49.9 but he was 424 of 850 from the field so he was only like one made field goal away from getting right back to 50 percent and being part of the 50 40 90 club so only eight guys have ever been part of the 50-40-90 club. Malcolm Brogdon became the eighth player last year, so Middleton could have given the Bucks two straight seasons of a player joining that club. And the thing with Middleton is he wasn't just do, like barely squeaking in there. This guy was doing it, averaging more than 21 points per game. He was doing that in only 30 minutes per game. So if you look at the guys who have actually joined the 50-40-90 club, if you use today's statistical minimums and then you sort it by the guys who are actually doing it while scoring as often as Middleton, you're basically left with an extremely impressive exclusive group that includes only Steph Curry, Larry Bird, and Kevin Durant. Chris Middleton was flirting with being a part of that group and we'll never know if he would have had the chance. And I think, again, this one doesn't really matter from a big picture perspective and it's not even as you know monumental as the record uh, Robinson would have set from a pure eye-popping perspective. But in terms of how impressive it actually is, I think yeah, this one's going to be crazy more. if the season's done and he does, and, and they do prorate cutoff points and he does finish one field goal shy of joining that club. Which would be insane. Um, and I, I mean, he's been at 50-40-90 for almost the entire season too. That's the thing. Like it's only recently that he's like kind of dipped below that 50% field goal mark. For the longest time, it seemed like he was going to join that incredibly exclusive group of doing 50-40-90 while averaging more than 20 points a game. And of course, you know, him slipping below that 50% threshold should not take away anything from the amazing season that he's had. But it's like when you look back through the history books, um, it would have been, uh, I think, pretty special just for him to have that season memorialized in that way, uh, where his name is alongside those legends as doing something, you know, that uh, that only a small handful have ever done. Yeah, and I think the fact that you can have the consistent shooting season he was having, and then a four-game slump is what drops you below the thresholds, I think is a testament to how insane a 50-40-90 shooting season is when you're talking about the volume Chris Middleton's Absolutely. at. All right, well, I think we managed this first at-home podcast. Again, I hope the audio quality is passable for our listeners. Unless Joe Wolf has anything else to add about this first 10 days in quarantine and the first week and a half without the NBA, then uh, I think what we'll do is we'll take the break and we will come back with Dwight Powell. Yeah, that's it. I got nothing more to add except to say that I really miss basketball right now. And uh, I'm just hoping that uh, everybody in, in their own way is holding up okay and, and dealing with this crisis in, in whatever way they can. Amen to that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. 
And in case you haven't already, download the SCORE app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, joined now by Dallas Mavericks big man, Dwight Powell, who's going to talk to us about a really important charity that he has donated to and is involved with. Dwight, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. I know it's kind of a crazy time out there for everyone, so we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. No problem. So before we get into the reason we brought you on, which like I said, is to talk about the, the great charity initiative you're involved with. Um, I've got, I mean, just personally, how, how are you doing? I know it's only been a couple of months since you suffered the, the ruptured Achilles. Uh, it's going good. Um, thankfully, the Mavs will give me all the stuff I need to have here at home for the rehab process. And up to this point, I've been, been on schedule and there's been no pain and things have been going good, progressing well. So now I just got to stick to the regimen we've kind of been doing and Thankfully, I have the stuff I need. I can do it at home. Yeah, I imagine that's huge. Cause that, that's actually one thing I've been interested in just in general, like how NBA players and pro athletes during this kind of time when everyone's quarantined, how people are staying in shape and staying active. Because, you know, for a lot of you guys, I imagine, and, and in your case, I guess, you know, it's a good thing. Like you said, they've set you up at home for your rehab. But for a lot of people, I know, you know, in Toronto, for example, Serge Ibaka is kind of posting those funny videos of him like running up and down his hall to stay in shape. For so many athletes, I imagine this is the first time in a long time where you don't necessarily have the advantages that you should come with being a pro athlete when it, you know, whether it's like high performance machines or, you know, the trainers that are usually there with you. So that's kind of one thing that's fascinated me is how players have, you know, stayed in shape and stayed active when they're kind of in in the same boat as everyone else. But in your case, it's good to hear that uh, the rehab hasn't been affected. No, yeah, I think think this is a time for everyone to kind of just get back to basics. I think there's a bunch of different things you can do to to get your heart rate up and and to work out, even with just body weight. And I know a lot of guys have some equipment that they've borrowed from, from the gym or um, things that they already had at home um, to keep in shape. But I don't think you really need much if you want to. I'm obviously a little bit limited with kind of my mobility in general right now anyway, but um, there's some of the stuff you can do with, with just body weight and, and stuff around the house. So In terms of the season itself, I mean, I know obviously you weren't going to play again this season because of the injury, but even just like the camaraderie and, and being around the team and watching ball as a fan and watching your teammates, how disappointing has it been for you to just not have that? Yeah, it's tough. This is, it's strange. I think I have a little bit of a, a stranger, different perspective, I guess, because I kind of had this this whole season taken away from me kind of in tears. So the first one was I wasn't allowed to play and I couldn't couldn't travel and wasn't even able to to really sit on the bench until the last few games before this started. And then now the whole thing is, is off for now. Um, so it's been, it's been weird. Um, definitely miss the guys. I was, we had a good little FaceTime session with, with a bunch of the guys this morning, just trying to catch up and, and stay connected and keep each other kind of positive. And um, hopefully this, this ends sooner than later and we can get back on the court. But um, yeah, in the meantime, we're, we're all missing it terribly. And as much as it's, as, much, as many options as there are to work out at home and, and kind of quote-unquote stay in shape like physically and cardiovascularly, it's, it's very different when you can't have a ball in the hand and you can't, you know, get some shots up even or, or play one-on-one. Like, that's the things that we, you know, live for. This, this is going to be tough in that respect, but trying to stay connected, I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. Is there one teammate or someone from the organization that you've, you've been most connected with, whether it's on FaceTime through this time, or is it kind of all your teammates equally? You know, it's been great. We've had, we have a couple big group messages that have our team in it, and we have some with coaches and staff in it that we've been, you know, sending jokes and keeping up. And um, our training staff, each of them individually contact us every day just to double-check, make sure we're okay, and 
if guys have rehab regimens, kind of updating them on what they need to do that day and, and checking in on their progress. Um, and then we also have a bunch of FaceTime sessions throughout the day with different guys and, and see what guys are doing. And obviously, I think across the league and across the, the world right now, social media has become, you know, really important. <laughs> and I think yeah. guys are engaging at different levels, but it's it's awesome way to, to keep people entertained, keep people informed and check in with your, your friends and family. So. Um, we have a good we have a good group here, so we've been we've been very connected. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, I was actually thinking about you know even just the amount of time I've spent video chatting with friends and family and whatever, and, and I can't imagine if this same thing were to happen if we didn't have access to those kinds of things, you know, like and if it was just phone calls, but you couldn't see uh, your friends' faces or your family's faces, like even just that little thing, I feel like makes us such a huge difference. Oh, it definitely makes a huge difference. Huge difference. All right, like I said, the reason we brought you on, we really want to talk to you and have you talk about charity initiative you're involved with. Yourself, Luka Doncic, and Mark Cuban teamed up to donate half a million dollars to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Parkland Hospital. But, you know, I, I know it's not just a donation. It's not just a regular donation. If you could maybe explain to our listeners and to anyone who doesn't know the specifics of, you know, what that money's going to go to and what it's going to help out with. Yeah, so we um, we reached out to, to the hospital knowing that they have uh, – they, first of all, are a great hospital in our community, both of them, and they've done a, a tremendous job over the years that they've been here. Um, and we know they have a lot of um, cases right now they're dealing with as far as the, the virus is concerned. And um, staff, doctors, nurses, everyone in the hospital is having to you know, pick up extra shifts and, um, and work through this tough time, kind of being our first line of defense against this, this virus. But a lot of them, whether they have a single income home or whether it's a single parent, they have, they have families, children at home that, that need care. So um, primarily our objective is to kind of alleviate that stress and, and provide them with, um, with child care so that they can continue to do this, you know, heroic work um, without having to sacrifice the well-being of their child or um, have to make those tough decisions. So that was the, the main focus for us is to, to make sure that their families, their children are, are safe and cared for and um, looked after during this time when these these heroes are really looking after all of us. It's just such a great initiative because I just think it's it's kind of a forgotten component of all this. And, you know, we talk about like the frontline workers and the healthcare workers being the real superheroes and all this and the amount of hours they're putting in and the risk to themselves and their families are putting in. But I feel like that was just kind of one thing that maybe slipped through the cracks is, you know, everyone's talking about, well, like if schools are canceled, the kids are at home and who's with them, but no one was really talking about, well, what about those healthcare workers that we just called superheroes who are out there working 12, 14 hour shifts on the front lines, you know, what about their kids? So it is, it's just such a great and I think unique initiative. How did you guys kind of think of it or how did it come to be? Was it someone approach you with an idea? Did you maybe see something on TV that like, how did it come about? Um, I think we were just thinking through the whole, the whole process of how everything's going to potentially go down. And, um, obviously first looking at ourselves and our households individually and what can we do, um, on a day to day basis. And that's, Staying inside, socially isolating, uh, or socially distancing rather, um, keeping great hygiene and, and just avoiding any sort of situation where you can possibly um, contract or transmit this this virus. Um, and then from there, we kind of looked at what's one of the most important things. And I think right now, one of the most important things that these healthcare workers, these frontline um, defense against this virus, these healthcare providers that are putting their lives at risk, and how can we? support them so that one they can continue doing their job and, and two so that we can um help in any way possible overall and as far as stopping this this virus so 
it came down to just looking at the details and that was one of the things as you mentioned that we thought might have slipped through the cracks and hopefully it's it's been helping have you heard from anyone or as you know mark or luca heard from anyone um from those healthcare workers like about you know the impact it's had for them so far or anything like that yeah actually surprisingly the the channels through which people have reached out has been has been surprising a little bit i mean maybe it shouldn't be because of the way that social media is now but i've had um one of my high school roommates reached out because one of his college teammates knew someone that worked at Parkland that was um, talking about this initiative and how they were grateful they could help um, with their situation. And I've had people reach out on, on social media, through Instagram and Twitter, um, making comments about how they appreciate what's going on. And um, but yeah, hopefully it's hopefully it's filling that need and, and providing those those workers with a little bit of help and, and support because they really are, are real life superheroes right now. And they're, they're putting everything on the line to, to help this country, to help the globe really um, come back from this. Absolutely. I know Mark, you know, Cuban, the Mavericks owner was, I believe the first owner to really come out and say from the beginning, I think the night or the day after the season was suspended, that he was going to make sure that, you know, arena workers and part-time staff and, and things like that were taken care of. As a player, as someone in the organization, like how much do you guys pay attention to that kind of stuff, and and how much does that affect you and you know your pride in the organizations you play for when you do see you know your owner, or the management team, or whoever it is taking those kind of steps to you know to help the other people in the organization that maybe aren't as fortunate as you guys. It's huge. It's huge for us. Um, we all definitely take notice of it, and and we take it as as an example that's being set for us. I think since day one, I got to Dallas. That's been kind of the thing. The the three leaders really in that with with coach coach Carl and Mark and then Dirk while he was here they they did a phenomenal job of, of teaching us young players and all of us really um, the importance of the community and how we can't do what we do we can't play this game that we love um, every day if it's not for them and and their unrelenting support is 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 everything so we have to find whatever way we can to give back to them not just through the game not just through obviously winning as much as possible and representing them, but supporting them in their day-to-day lives when we can um, and when there's need. So it it didn't surprise me at all that he made that um, announcement and that he was going to do that. Um, And I think it just sets further, sets an example for all of us to try and find as many um, unique and creative ways if, if, if need be to, to help the community and support them the way that they've supported us over the years. On the court, obviously, it seems like you guys had a good thing going on, and I'm sure have a good thing going on in the future. But yeah, it just obviously seems like off the court, you guys have something good going on too. And I think, you know, between Mark making that, taking that stand basically the night the season was suspended, and then you know, this project that you and Mark and Luca donated to, it seems like um, on and off the court, you guys got a good thing going. No, absolutely. Hopefully we can... We can get this all taken care of and get back on the court. I think I think this this city has come a lot, come together a lot, and I think the country and even the world. But um, I think everyone's anxious to to get back to to some normalcy. So hopefully, this is taken care of sooner than later. Good reminder too of how connected we all are. You know, even we were talking about social media, and you were talking about you know the the college um, teammate and 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 just how like there's so few degrees of separation, and it feels like now more than ever with social media. So I think just a good reminder to kind of, we're all in this together. For sure. Absolutely. We definitely are. All right, Twyman, thanks. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for your charity work and the community service. And then, you know, we hope you're doing well, both in your injury rehab and in the way you're handling this quarantine time. Thank you. All the best to you and yours too. Thanks, Dwight. All right. Thanks again to Dwight Powell for his time. You know, encourage any of our listeners 
who are looking to make a difference in their own way. Obviously, you know, it's not going to be by the same means as an NBA player or an owner or anything like that. But anyway, we can all help out those in need right now, frontline workers, whoever it is and however it is. Maybe it's just helping a neighbor or doing some grocery shopping for an elderly member of your community. Whatever the case may be, we can all help out in some way during this time. Till next time, for Dwight Powell, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Palm the Rock. Thank you.